Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, today we're going to learn that there is a fate much more terrifying than death, and that's never dying. <laughs> so, <laughs> now that you've read Borges' story, The Immortal, are you less afraid of your eventual demise? No, man, I want that power. <laughs> I want to learn the misery of being immortal. <laughs> what does Borges have to do to convince it you that it's not worth it? You need to make it sound less awesome. <laughs> Learning all those languages, having copies of the Iliad translated by Alexander Pope. <laughs> <laughs> so today we're going to talk about the Borges story, very great quintessential Borges story, The Immortal. It is quintessential, like you said. It hits so many of the Borges buttons. Um, yes. I think fundamentally, yeah. like meaning is... Is at stake. Yeah. Okay, but first, speaking, speaking of, of meaning. <laughs> meaning or lack thereof, we want to talk a little bit about, uh, what is it, CPT chat? <laughs> You've really prepared for this, haven't you? <laughs> chat GPT. Chat GPT. <laughs> I mean, I knew it was something along those lines, and I actually have had conversations with it. Uh, we don't have a, a ton planned about this, but... Uh, no, but can, can we, let's start with like a, the, a trivial yeah. aspect of it, which yeah. is um, having, you know, a lot of people, I think if you've been online at all, um, you've, you've seen examples of people using ChatGPT for various things. But one of the things that it does like really decently is write essays <laughs> yes. on topics. And, right. and I, at first I wasn't quite on board with the doomsday catastrophizing about how this is going to change grading. But now, like, I haven't taught a class that requires papers of that sort in a long time. But um, is that obsolete? It feels like it is a losing battle. Like, if, if students are savvy enough to use ChatGPT, well, then they'll learn about it eventually. It can pump out decent, whatever, five paragraph essays or thousand word essays, like, with no problem. And then if the student just edits it lightly, they're turning in like a better paper than most students would turn in. 
Yeah. So this is how I learned about it initially as a faculty member in my department said, I think we can't assign papers anymore, essentially. Here was, I, I gave him this prompt. It was, um, I think, philosophy of language or maybe metaphysics, some sort of prompt. And it gave an essay that was in the kind of structure, you know, it presents yeah. the, this argument and then objections and then this argument and then objections. And then it concludes, you know, and it was well done. You know, if you do a, a thought paper, right, if you have readings mm -hmm. and you do a thought paper. What do you mean by a thought paper? Like like if you just say, uh, write your a critical response or like your reaction, 500 words of reaction to the reading or something mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. Um, and they turn it in digitally. Uh, it's, it's very easy to feed chat GPT the content of the paper and it will summarize it. Or if it's yep. a well-known paper, it can offer, if you say like, give a critical analysis of this paper, like it can do it. Yeah. So, I, you know, I'm almost of the opinion that what we're going to have to do is think of it as yet another tool. Mm -hmm. and, and Like a calculator. Yeah. And maybe explicitly say you can use chat GPT, but use it, uh, either to edit or once it gives you something, edit it. And I was thinking, just tell him even turn in the original chat GPT thing if you want to use it and show me how you made it into a better paper, like one with, more, I don't know, more creativity or something like that. But I don't know. I, I, don't I also know. think that our assignments have to, so one assignment that I do all the time is uh, for asking them to raise questions about yeah. the text. For yeah, I learned that day. from you, actually, to, to yeah. assign questions. That's a really good thing to do. It is. I love it. It's my favorite assignment. I I don't know if it would be good at that. I haven't tried it, but if you said, like, come up with three good questions, and I always ask them to cite the text and, and then ask something about that little piece of text, connect it with something. I don't think it's good at, at that kind of thing. It's good at, like, what are three good arguments for the existence of God, and and then it'll lay them out, and it will give objections to them, and it'll do all that. But when it comes to actually exhibiting some curiosity or some kind of attentiveness to the actual text, I don't know if that's something that it can do very well. Yeah, I don't know either, but it seems, it, it seems like um, it's something that it might get decent at, but our trick will be trying to find <laughs> things that only human brains are good at. Or, you know, go old school and have students write out the things in class or, or just do, you know, oral exams like you and I were talking about offline the other day. I, not even offline. I think it was in our AUA. Oh, yeah, it was in our AUA. That's right. Um, but Which is so intimate as to be offline. <laughs> so in that Ask Us Anything that we just did and released to our patrons, um, I, I said that this was the thing that I was most impressed with. Like the first time I was really impressed by artificial intelligence. All the things that they say it's going to do, it always seems to me like it doesn't do them or it doesn't do them in an interesting or threatening or uh, groundbreaking way. But this thing was like, holy shit, I didn't think they would be able to do this <laughs> this fast and this well. Right. So then I went on it and started asking it some questions. So one of the things 
that it doesn't do is just give its opinion. So mm-hmm. I asked, like, I said, what's the best argument for the existence of God? And then it gave, like, th- three arguments for the existence of God, and it was really good, and they came up with objections, and people, and I said, well, do you find that argument compelling? And then it, it falls back on, well, I can't make yeah. a judgment like that. I can just say that these are the arguments and these are the objections. And then I said, all right, but come on, like, gun to your head, and it's like, you know, it just kind of repeats <laughs> the that kind of thing. So that was the first thing that makes it, you know, it's not going to ever give you something that sparks with originality or some kind of evaluation. It's just going to kind of give you just the dry fact. Right. So some people have found ways around that sort of thing by asking it to um, engage in pretense by saying, like, imagine that you're a character in a play uh, having an argument about the existence of God. Like, and, yeah. and then it seems to do that. Um, but the, the whole question of artificial intelligence, which I think, you know, it's hotly debated as to whether, you know, this is uh, true general artificial intelligence. And the question of whether this is intelligent um, kind of is is missing the point of what this has become. Like this doesn't have, you know, it doesn't really have to be intelligent or it doesn't have to match our theory of intelligence and it, it to be fucking amazing and blow your mind as like, this thing that can consume vast amounts of text, summarize it, and and render like uh, coherent arguments. It's incredible, and it it will fail in spectacular ways. But that's kind of missing the point about what's going on. Like it's you can. Right. There's some right. people who you know you can argue all day long that this isn't a real. It doesn't under truly understand. Yeah, it's like a, something it's, like that. Yeah. It's like the Chinese room. You know, it's like yeah. people have have taken to. to no, 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 Twitter I agree. A, that's kind yeah. of, that's just conceptual analysis or some kind of theory that it either does or doesn't fit. And I don't know exactly what you do about that. Um, I think you do have to tailor your assignments in a different way. And you do have to just sort of accept that, you know, it used to be that they had to do long division. They had to do that in their own head with a pencil and paper. Yeah. And now uh, they have calculators to do all of that stuff. And this might be like a calculator, but for processing information and text, you know, yeah. where it gets kind of sad is like, but then you're not actually reading. If, if you if you use it to substitute actually reading, you know, Antigone or Hamlet or uh, Pope's version of the Iliad or whatever, then yeah. uh, then you're going to miss out on like what's important about that. Yeah, I was trying I was trying to think of this this comparison to the calculator and how well look like you know i think teachers had to abandon the at some point the belief that students were going to do arithmetic yeah um and just you know allow calculators this kind of sucks because it is akin to a calculator for reasoning and and i do fear that the shaping of the mind of the student might be harmed by not going through the steps of reasoning uh, themselves and like the growth that occurs from, you know, taking the text and grokking it or whatever. Um, but and, maybe but people have always said that about mm-hmm. like, oh, so you're not memorizing Milton's Paradise Lost. Like, how are you going? How is your mind going to develop? <laughs> right. Or, But somehow we lived. <laughs> right. You know, like right. we're still we're still um, creative and intelligent beings. But you think this is a sea change beyond that? I mean, I think it's a sea change, yeah, procedurally. 
I, here, but, so can I tell yeah. you one thing that though that makes me think maybe students should be a little wary is <laughs> so I asked it to write a poem about the Iliad and it gives this poem and the first part is about it. It's not very good. Like I, I had seen people do this kind of stuff and it seemed better, but this one wasn't good. But then it just starts talking about uh, Achilles death and the Trojan horse and the burning of Troy. So then I said, all, all, all that takes place after the events of the Iliad, Trojan horse, Achilles' death, none of that occurs in the Iliad. And it said, you're right, exclamation point. And then said, that takes place in Homer's Odyssey, uh, the second <laughs> epic that he wrote. So then I said, actually, it doesn't take place in the Odyssey either. And it's like, yeah. you are correct, exclamation point. That Homer's Odyssey describes Odysseus's voyage um, back home after the Trojan War. Uh, I apologize if my previous responses caused any confusion. And it's like, no, you just lied both times, you know? Like, right. Uh, right. It has no- <laughs> it's not a confusion. You said, no, you're right. That took place in the Odyssey. That just sounds like a student making up shit because they didn't do the reading. You know, you know what it's, it's, yeah, it's lacking shame. I've seen, <laughs> yes. I've, I've seen similar, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I've seen similar posts like that where it's just completely wrong. Mm-hmm. Like apologizes, says something else completely wrong, <laughs> and and get, like, but a really fake apology, like <laughs> yeah. I, like I, mistakes were made, kind of apology. Like I'm <laughs> yeah. sorry if you were confused by my blatant falsehood. You know? Yeah. Right. Yeah. One of the big, like the big concerns that people have written is about oh misinformation or whatever. Uh, it's it gets things wrong, and it's like it'll cite if you ask it to to provide references for some claim. It it will make up papers that don't exist. (laughs) But, you know, like, this is what I mean by I'm a little less impressed with it. This is the kind of shit I figured it wouldn't do. Like, (laughs) it has access to, like, you know, all the information. So why is it just making things up? Like, it's like, like, (laughs) did it just suddenly forget? It can't look up the Wikipedia entry on the Odyssey? Why is it all of a sudden just making basic errors about things that, like, most adults know right now? (laughs) Um, you know? Yeah. No, I mean, it, I, it, uh, like, I don't have a good answer to the question other than that. What, what machine learning fundamentally is, is something that can't just look up. You can't have a, like, it can't have a rule that says, look up the right answer. It's, no, no, no. Just, but it should have access to just the, a synopsis of the Iliad and the Odyssey, right? Yeah. You think? No. Yeah, it does. It's just like, there is no going in and telling it like, these are the right things. Right. Right. You know, it's it's literally creating words and using uh, prediction to, to put the next word in its sentence. It, yeah. You know, it's crazy what it's doing. It's a um, con. It's like a con man, like, a, like, a, <laughs> or, you know, uh, somebody who can take you in for a while, but then we'll do kind of a fuck up that, you know, Angela Lansbury in the end uh, catches them. <laughs> right. What's that movie? where Matt Damon plays like a shady guy. Oh, uh, yeah. A talented Mr. Ripley. <laughs> so it's, a, it's a talented Mr. Ripley. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can't... It's it's crazy. You can't trust it. Not in the way that you... Like people used to say, you can't trust Wikipedia because like whatever, people write bullshit in there. It's different. You can't trust it in a way that's like super unpredictable. Like... You, yeah. <laughs> it, right. it will sound intelligent. It will give you what seem like facts. And sometimes they really are. And it really is. Like it's not... 
Yeah. It's, but the thing about this exchange that was just struck me was that it was like it got caught in something it didn't know and then just tried immediately to flail to something else that it also didn't know. Right. Yeah. So so I don't know. It, it's it's going to get better and better as people give it feedback. You'll never know, though. It's the library of Babel. Babel. You'll, yeah. you'll never quite know whether you have a book that has all of the right things or whether you have a book that has all of the right things except for like one. Right. right? And <laughs> right. since you can never quite know that fact. <laughs> yeah. And it's always going to be a risk when you turn yeah. it in. Cause if it's uh like, if it makes an, a mistake like that, as glaring as like the one it made with me, it was like, Oh, you didn't read this. You fed this to chat GPT. Right. You would know right away, you know? Yeah. And, and, and like, if you use it to, help you make some huge decision in your life, there's no way for you to know whether it's doing what it does really well or if it's, it's it has the appearance of that, but there's one crucial thing that it fucks up and it's just as confident about that as it is about everything else. Dude, check this out. I asked <laughs> ChatGPT, uh, write a summary of Jorge Luis Borges' short story, The Immortal. <clears throat> so yeah. that's what it replied. The Immortal is a short story by Jorge Luis Borges that tells the story of a group of travelers who set out on a journey to find the Fountain of Youth, a mythical spring that is said to have the power to grant eternal life. Along the way, the travelers encounter various challenges and obstacles, including a group of bandits in a treacherous desert. Despite these challenges, they eventually reach the Fountain of Youth, where they are confronted with a difficult choice, to drink from the fountain and live forever, or to leave it behind and continue on their journey. In the end, <laughs> the travelers decide to leave the fountain behind, choosing to embrace the natural cycle of life and death. It's so than full of shit! Death. This story is a contemplation on the nature of immortality and the dangers of seeking it. It's completely... It's just total... Like, all of a sudden, I'm not not worried about, like, the students using it for a paper. It's... Evoking uh, the Library of Babel, I think, is the right thing. Like, it's so hit and miss. It has the world's information at its fingertips, and it can't generate, like, a reliable... You you just can't trust anything. Yeah. I'm telling it that is not the plot. (laughs) Oh, yeah, so what does it say? <laughs> I apologize for the mistake. Here's a story of the actual plot of the immortal by Jorge Luis Borges. In the story, a man named Juan Dalman becomes obsessed with finding the secret to eternal life. <laughs> what the fuck? It's like shame, shameless is a great <laughs> w- way to describe it. It's completely shameless. <laughs> Program some shame into this shit. <laughs> he spends years studying ancient texts and seeking out the advice of wise men, eventually learning of a man named Averroes who is said to have achieved immortality. Say that's yeah. not the plot either. <laughs> that's not the plot. <laughs> plot either. I think you have not read The Immortal by Jorge Luis Borges. I apologize for the confusion. It seems that I have not accurately summarized the plot of The Immortal. Please allow me to try again. (laughs) In The Immortal, Borges tells the story of a man named Haddad who embarks on a journey to find (laughs) a secret. It's just giving me the same plot as the first one. Along the way, he encounters many challenges and obstacles, including a treacherous desert and a group of warriors who try to kill him. Despite these dangers, Haddad persists. He's confronted with a difficult choice to drink from the fountain or leave it behind. All right, so I wanted to ask it. You ask uh, a good question about Iliad Book 9. Certainly, here's a good question. Why does Achilles decide to return to battle in Book 9? He doesn't. He actually rejects 
the decisions and what are the consequences of his decision? He rejects, like he's, he's offered comp, uh, like this big bounty to return to the war. And he says, no, in book nine of the Iliad, Achilles makes the decision to return to battle after a long absence in which he refused to fight due, due to his dispute with Agamemnon. That part is true, but uh, his return to the field of battle has significant consequences, both for the outcome of the war and the fate of individual characters. You know, so it just, doesn't know the right book. It's just weird. Right. I think the best uses for it right now are ones that avoid uh, relying on it for any kind of like facts that you don't know, but ones that use it. Like Yoel did this. Yoel uh, discovered that this process works well for writing rec letters. So he will speak into his phone like some general comments about the student like uh, that he wants to be in the letter and it will transcribe into text. He'll feed that text into tech into chat GPT and say like, make this into a rec letter. And then it just adds all of the, like whatever normal language flows. And there you can at least evaluate on the face of it, whether it's got it right or wrong. Yeah. Um, That's uh, very reprehensible. Uh, UL. Well, like I was saying in the AUA, he also fed the text of one of the abstracts that of a paper that he and I wrote together and said, make this like more concise and <laughs> wrote a better abstract than we, than we wrote to begin with. So anything that you can evaluate on the face of it, um, I think you could use it as a real tool. Yeah. I think this was on Eric Hole, um, his Substack. So he has a post called the banality of chat GPT. And he, he basically argues like, it's great and it turns out to be really boring. I, I, I felt that about Dolly. Like I felt Dolly was really fucking yeah. boring and I couldn't get into it at all. And yeah. I, like, I don't know if anybody had really high hopes for something like that, but that was what I was struck by. And this was inter more interesting and like I said, more impressive at first, but then, yeah, it does have these kind of glaring issues that make you question how impressive it, it 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 really is in the end and 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 you know i'm i'm always hesitant or wary of the people who say well in 5 years like it's all of that stuff will be taken care of because they've been saying that about driverless cars and they've been <laughs> saying sometimes they're right but a lot of the time a lot of times there's just something that they haven't taken into account there's some variable that prevents them from achieving the things that they thought was so were so obvious so two things one sometimes i do feel a little bit like the Louis CK bit where you have Wi-Fi on the plane and you know and like you complain where we're like yeah but Chad GPT isn't like per like it's like we have a crazy like crazy yeah. insane tool that if you had told us 10 years ago you could do this and get this output our minds would be blown it's just it's yeah. happened slowly enough that that it's easier to kind of uh, complain about the mistakes but I, I'm, but I'm not sure I totally agree because I don't think this is such an amazing thing to have. Whereas like Wi-Fi, you know, the fact that you can FaceTime somebody from uh, another country like it's nothing. That's like, holy shit, I can't believe that we can do this. But this, it's like, okay, yeah. But it's not like it's doing anything that interesting. Maybe. Like, I, I don't totally disagree with you. I agree with you specific, like, especially about Dolly and the AI art where yeah. it's like it is cool it's cool and then and you're like well right. uh, i mean we had a good discussion about this sorry to keep bringing up the aua we had a good discussion about why art specifically doesn't have the satisfying um, yeah this is going to be a tool that i think 
you know, Google and we have a listener who was an engineer at Meta. They're all working on shit like this. And what it's going to yeah. be is like, it's going to be crazy that you can say, write me a, you know, a, a script in Python that can do this. And you just feed it in natural language and it will actually produce that output. It's right. just going to be, it's going to be a great tool. So would you compare it to something like the internet, which is genuinely groundbreaking and has changed our uh, experience kind of fundamentally of like how we navigate the world? Or is it going to be more like Alexa? You know, it's like, (laughs) I guess it's cool, but who gives a shit really? Like, I I don't really want it. I Um, think it's going to be a a slow burn. I don't know how to describe it, where once these kind of models get fed into Alexa for instance, right? Yeah. Once, like if, if you could integrate this kind of, of like seriously more in, intense crunching of information and yeah. make it so that Siri isn't the dumb fuck that it is, right. um, then, then it'll, it'll just slowly creep into various aspects of our life that yeah. won't, it won't be that mind blowing because we're not going to see it. I don't know what the right comparison is, but it's going to be a tool that we all take for granted, I think. Something that just all of a sudden we can do and it's like we could always do it. Right. You know, I can I alternate between being somewhat dismissive and being like this is like the beginning of the internet. Like we don't understand the ways in which we have no concept of the ways in yeah. which this will change the way we um interact with the world. Yeah. And just our day-to-day experience. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's right. And uh, my hope is that our, our listener who works at Meta who said that that he, he was going to feed all of the transcripts of all of our episodes and <laughs> oh, yeah. make some... <laughs> Just so make that, look, our daughters can, of us. Uh, uh, yeah, our daughters will be able to talk to us from the afterlife. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that's going to... But they, they have, um, you know, 250 episodes worth of audio, you know, which is actually us. It's not like Black Mirror <laughs> versions of us. It's just us. Can you and imagine? They can our... yell at us. You know, listeners say they yell at the uh, stereo right. or whatever, the yeah. car stereo. Yeah. They, can you imagine, though, if if the transcripts of everything we said on Very Bad Wizards yeah. became the the sort of like the engine for uh, an AI that mimics us. And our daughters asked it for actual advice after we were dead. I can't, yeah. I can't, I cannot put any faith in the advice that would be generated from. That's a from good an, question. <laughs> you know? I mean, we try to be our, our real self, our authentic selves. So I believe that it would, I think it, it would, would be good. Yeah. I don't know. My deepest horror would be if it mistook what you say for what I say. And my daughter <laughs> got advice from you. <laughs> Because, you know, listeners do that all the time. They'll get mad at one of us for what the other one said. <laughs> more me, they get mad at. But yeah, um, unlike you, I might. I think it might be better for, uh, <laughs> for you to, like, temper whatever my advice would be. You know, like, having your influence might be helpful for <laughs> my, my daughter. <laughs> well, I, then I, now I feel bad. I take it back. It might be, <laughs> it might be good for Bella to get some Tamler. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god <laughs> uh, hopefully hopefully i i don't die until she dies you know, know. in a car car accident or something <laughs> <laughs> when she's like 30 you know <laughs> oh god i think this is the perfect point to move on to a discussion of immortality <laughs> this is gonna be bad for the ai <laughs> all right uh, 
Uh, we'll be right back to talk about Borges's The Immortal. This episode of Very Bad Wizards is brought to you once again by BetterHelp Online Therapy. You know, uh, amongst geeks, there's a uh, saying, RTFM. If you, if you know, you know what I'm talking about. Read the manual. Um, and it's usually given as advice for people who are asking questions without having actually just read the stupid manual about the thing that they're asking questions. Wouldn't it be great if you could do that for life, if life actually came with a manual? Unfortunately, it doesn't. So when it's not working for you, it's normal to feel stuck. It's normal to not know where to go, who to talk to, what to do. Navigating any of life's challenges can make you feel unsure, whether it's a career change, a new relationship, or even becoming a new parent. Therapists are trained to help you figure out the cause of challenging emotions and learn productive coping skills. So if you're having these kinds of challenges in life, you know, RTFM, except for in this case, uh, the manual is actually talking to a therapist who's trained to help you out. I can speak from experience, but also from the many people who I know who've also had this experience, that therapy can uh, help you in so many different domains of your life. Even if you go in for treatment because of one specific issue, like a relationship or um, anger issues or uh, anxiety, you'll learn tools, um, skills that will actually help you in a bunch of other ways. Which brings us back to BetterHelp. BetterHelp is the world's largest therapy service. It's matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists who are available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It really couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash VBW. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash VBW. Our thanks to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode of Very Bad Wizards. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. This is the time where we like to take a moment and thank all of our wonderful listeners, all the people who get in touch with us, who contact us, who give us shit, and also give us some love. And I, we like both of those things. <laughs> Probably the love a little bit more gun to our head. <laughs> it feels a little better. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
So if you want to get in touch with us, there's a bunch of ways you can do that. You can email us, verybadwizards at gmail.com. You can tweet at us at Tamler, at Peas, or at verybadwizards. You can follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook, and you can join the thriving Reddit community where there's a lot of good discussion of very bad wizards adjacent topics and also very bad wizards episodes. And um, yeah, we really appreciate it. We've, as usual, gotten a bunch of really nice emails and I wish we had the time to respond to all of them, but we do read all of them and um, we, we're just very grateful for it. The gratitude that people show in email sometimes is just like I cannot I can't explain how how nice that is to, to yeah. <laughs> just know know that somebody listened and cared and like you know if they say like it it was during a tough time or like it, it, even it just it made me laugh like that's just uh, I don't know yeah, it got it's, got me through this period of my yeah. life when I was doing this job or going through a, a bad period or anything like that to know that we have helped somebody and made their life a little brighter. Yeah. Uh, that's is awesome. about as good as it gets. That's awesome. And for those of you who uh want to help us in in uh material, tangible ways. Uh, we always appreciate that too. It's not necessary. We make these episodes free for a reason for everybody to listen. But for those who can afford to help us out, we really appreciate it. You can go to our Very Bad Wizards support page. And find all the ways that you can support us there. You can give us donations on PayPal. You can buy some swag, uh, T-shirts, mugs, or you can become or and you can become a Patreon subscriber. Um, Just one or the other. <laughs> it's, it's an exclusive war. And uh, uh, yeah, sign up there. And if you do, there are a variety of tiers at dollar um you get ad-free episodes. You get all of the beat compilations that I've put together. At $2 and up, you get access per episode. You get access to all of our bonus content, um, including the Ask Us Anythings that we do monthly, all of our sort of uh, cat back catalog of discussions about movies, TV shows, sometimes guests. $5 and up, you get all that. You get to vote on an episode topic. Um, that we do a couple times a year. And then you get access to a few extra things, the Brothers Karamazov series that we did, um, my intro psych videos, Tamler's Play-Doh lectures. And finally, $10 and up, you get to ask us anything. And we've uh, done it, what did we say? What was it, 13 times now? I don't know, 15? 15. 15. 15 yeah. times. And we've answered every single question that has been asked of us, and we, we, we love Except doing for it. One. Except for one, <laughs> we acknowledged it. And um, you get to see us on video. So uh, thank you to everybody for all those ways of supporting us. We have a, a few uh, just notes for how this uh, the schedule for the rest of the year is going to go. We yep. are going to finish up the season one of the Ambulators discussion, the Deadwood episodes 11 and 12. We're going to do that in early January, right? Yeah. We tried to, we wanted to get it done before New Year's, but we don't have the time. We're both traveling and we, it's the last two episodes of the, of, of the Deadwood season. So we want to do it right. Yeah, so we're gonna, we can't, uh, we can't yeah, short shrift on, on those. 
No, like uh, elsewhere in Jen, <laughs> not take kindly to that. That's right. Uh, and we are going to take the, a little holiday break, but we're still we we have two episodes in December. We have two episodes in January, but the, they're going to come. Uh, January tenth will be the next episode. But before that, we're going to drop. This one. Yeah, after this one, we're going to drop a couple of goodies for all of our Patreon supporters. Um, yeah, a couple things. Should we say? Yeah. Yeah, uh, I just did a Q&A with Sam Harris on his meditation app. It's absolutely fantastic meditation app, Waking Up. And it's there right now, but I also asked him if I could post it for our Patreon supporters at the $2 and up bonus level. And he said, sure. So uh, next Tuesday, instead of the ambulators, uh, we'll put that up, and then the following Tuesday, you have something that you did on your. You have a little side project. Yeah, it's, it's nowhere near as big time as. Uh, by the way, the best part of you being on the Waking Up app is the that there's just a sketch of you, like when you open the <laughs> <Yeah>. app. <laughs> right now, when you open the app, uh, yeah, that's I, actually a nice sketch. I'm happy with that. That's amazing. But yeah, no, you're small time. I went on the big time show, Decoding the Gurus, and uh, <laughs> they invited me on. I really like those guys. They invited me on to talk about, uh, I, I said no more Weinstein talk. I can't, I can't stomach that. So we went on to talk about It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Um, and we got that on video, which they released to their Patreon supporters, but they said I could release to ours. So we'll post that nice. as well. Yeah, it was fun. Very yeah. fun discussion. Yeah, and to be clear, the Q and A that we're doing, I'm not being <laughs> asked questions uh, <laughs> about meditation. I am doing the the questioning. Well, that was cool because you just had a bunch of questions. Like I feel yeah. like we should say, Tamler had a bunch of questions ab about meditation for Sam since you use his app, and yeah. Sam was like, "Just come on," like which yeah. I it's you know it shows. What's cool about it is it shows that Sam res respects you in that way to, to come on. I think that's I hope very so. nice. For now, yeah. we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see if I if I get asked back. If we get asked back. Remember we used to go on Waking Up? We used I mean, not Waking Up, but uh, uh, what is it? Making Sense. Making Sense, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so thank you, everybody. Um, uh, happy holidays to all, and thank you for the gratitude, and we uh, we are very grateful for you. Yeah, and happy uh, fourth day of Hanukkah. Yeah, Ch Chappy Chanukah, as they say. Hmm, do they? <laughs> All right, we're going to turn now to our, one of our favorites, or maybe our favorite at this point. God, there's so much. It's so rich. It's so fertile, the, these short stories by Jorge Luis Borges. Yeah, um, it's, uh, and this is, as you were saying, like a, a Borgesy. It's very Borgesy. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it, has, it hits a lot of the of the, the things that Borges likes to do. Yeah. It has a lot of the like quintessential aspects of a Borges story, like an obsession with infinity, a kind of weariness. Yeah. You know, crisis of meaning. And also just a, a worry that like the way we categorize and understand things is very contingent and you know yeah c would completely change if we were different kinds of beings so right. an unreliable narrator potentially yeah, uh, definitely a, a story nested within a meta like story yeah. something found in like a weird bookshop or, <laughs> you know <laughs> like uh this kind of arcana 
it's, yeah. it's so so I don't think the plot is that complicated but you want to just give a summary of I, I yeah I'll try I think it might be kind of complicated yeah though. I mean the themes yeah but okay but, but like the main event yeah. yeah yeah so uh, a woman goes to a bookstore in late 29. 1920s and somebody gives her a copy of Alexander Pope's translation of the Iliad and she she finds out that this bookseller dies and then in the back of the Iliad um you know somewhere in the, the towards the end of the book she finds this manuscript and this manuscript is what the story is right then we get the narration of a roman from the like fourth century AD, something like that, third or fourth century, uh, a Roman soldier. And he tells this tale about seeing some uh, enemy and after torturing him, uh, finding out information about the existence of a river that will make you immortal. And the emperor sends him and a bunch of other men on a quest to find this river and the secret of um, immortality. And so he goes on this long journey. He hears that there is a city of immortals, just people who have drunk from the river around it. And um, yeah, so he sets off in search from that. Uh, on the way, he encounters troglodytes, cave dwellers, right. um, kind of stunted people who don't uh, communicate with each other at all and only eat snakes occasionally, but that's it. And they barely seem like they're focusing on anything in, in life, right? Right, right. And, like very animalistic, um, blank yeah, blank. And one of them at a certain point starts following him. Right. Um, I guess he uh, he's he's imprisoned for a bit, right? Like he's kind of ambushed and tied up. Yes, right. So he took a he took a group of soldiers, mercenaries with him on this quest, crossing deserts. They defect. They try to whatever the land version of mutiny is. Um, yeah. They try to overtake him. He's finally left with like himself, basically, and. He, I guess, passes out at some point crossing one of these deserts and wakes up with his hands tied behind his back um, yeah. in like a little niche, like a, like a cave nook that the troglodytes put him in. But they don't seem to care at all. Right. <laughs> this is a weird him. part of the story. It's yeah. like nothing about them suggests that they would just ambush somebody and tie them up. Right. Nothing. There's, yeah. no, there's no reason given. And mm-hmm. he wakes up tied and he uh, he had seen i guess the city of the immortals which was where the river was said to be he'd seen it in the distance and so um he's tied up he doesn't know what to do he's able to hop out and there's like some muddy shitty river that he dives into and drinks the water and uh, is somehow manages to cut himself free uh, with like a piece of rock and this is the river and it turns out, <laughs> it turns yeah. out that was the river. He doesn't, he doesn't know that, I guess. Yeah. yeah. So then this is a very cool part of the story where he goes into, he, he wants to get to the city. Yeah. Right. It's described as on this like stone plateau that's really hard to scale. Yeah. And, and then city walls on top of the plateau that also can't be scaled. And also, yeah, that, that also can't be scaled. 
And so he can't get up there. And so he just goes into a cavern. Yeah, there's no doors at all on the on the city wall. But he and, sees a ladder sticking yeah. out from the ground. Yeah. And, but that takes him down, right? Yeah, yeah. It takes him down into a chamber. He, he sees that there are nine doors. Eight of those doors lead right back to the original chamber. Uh, they're like labyrinthine, another of fav- Borges' favorites. Yep. Um, the ninth one, though, takes him to another chamber. And, and that continues. Like, so the, and he has no sense of how many doors and labyrinths he actually had to cross. Um, <clears throat> like he loses his sense of time in there. Yeah. And he is horrified then by what he sees. Right. When this. he finally gets up. Like he finally, yeah, he, yeah. he had, there are these metal rings of a ladder that lead out of whatever he's in now. And then he goes up and he finds himself in a city that is just incoherent, you know? Yeah. It is, uh, it's like a maze. He, the way he describes it, the gods that built this place have died. The gods that built this place were mad. Yeah. Um, he, right. He, he compares it to a maze. He says a maze is a house built purposely to confuse men in art in architecture. Prodigal in symmetries is made to serve that purpose. In the palace that I imperfectly explore, explored, the architecture had no purpose. Yeah, you know, it's like uh, a, a senseless city, yeah. and um, he's horrified by it. It's it's like it's it's kind of a haunting description um, of of how he could be horrified. He says, this city is so horrific that its mere existence, the mere fact of its having endured, even in the middle of a secret desert, pollutes the past and the future and somehow compromises the stars. So long as this city endures, no one in the world can ever be happy or courageous. I do not want to describe it. That's such a weird sentence, right? I know. Uh, so long as this city endures, no one in the world can ever be happy or courageous. Like, what does that even mean? It's uh, so weird. Like, I was. It, it seems as if it's just trying to communicate the emotion of of uh, chaos that he was feeling at the sight of the architecture of the city that this that made no sense. It yes. it feels like an, an Escher maze that's more chaotic. Like the way that he describes, yeah. like upside down stairs. Um, you know, doors that open to nowhere. But without the kind of the exuberance of an Escher maze, you <laughs> right. know, it just seems more, yeah, like a Del Toro in Pan's Labyrinth feel of like you just have this dread. Yeah. Um, he says, I, I do not want to describe it. A chaos of heterogeneous words, the body of a tiger or a bull, pululating with teeth, organs, and heads, monstrously yoked together, yet hating each other. Those might perhaps be approximate images. So is this supposed to be an early metaphor for immortality? This idea of a place that is irrational, it has no purpose, it has no meaning, it's chaotic, it pollutes the past and the future, the fact that, you know, it, uh, a life goes on forever, that there's something about it that is, I don't know, like a disease well, or something. Yeah. I mean, the part that really resonated was the part where it says this architecture had no purpose. Mm-hmm. And then we find, we later find out that it was, uh, the original city built by the immortals was destroyed and this one was put in its place. Yeah. Um, and, As it's like counterpoint, kind yeah. of. Yeah, and I feel like that that theme um, that we'll talk about, I'm sure, of 
the impossibility of finding meaning when you live forever um, is reflected in in the city that they built. Like nothing yeah, matters deeply. Nothing matters. Right. Normal cities operate under the assumption that things matter and <laughs> things have a purpose. And, yeah. you know, you like the, a city is designed in a certain way for uh, for certain ends and those ends have value. And like this is exactly not that none right. of those things conditions are met. <laughs> right. Exactly. And it's I, I guess I mean, I take it that there is no one in this city like he doesn't mention that there being anybody in this city. No. Yeah, right. no, it's completely abandoned, yeah. and as we'll find out by the troglodytes. Right. So yes. he books it. He 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 leaves this. <laughs> he goes yes. back through all those crypts and and tries to erase it from his memory, which is kind of interesting. And and this whole time, as is another kind of common a feature of Borges' stories is he just says, like, my memory might be distorted. I don't know. And that's going to be something that continues. But he's already kind of warning us that I don't know how much of this is actually true. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, I'm doing my best, but I don't know how good that is. Uh, so he comes out and sees the troglodyte that had followed him, and he's just kind of waiting there. Um, this kind of this somewhat old-looking, you know. Yeah, they uh, have like gray, gray skin, gray beards. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, so, and so he he says, "I named it uh, Argos because of the old dog in the Odyssey." So when Odysseus, this is it's a very heartbreaking scene in, in the Odyssey when Odysseus finally arrives home, but he's disguised as a beggar. He arrives home and his dog Argos has been has been waiting 20 years. Very Aww. old dog has been waiting 20 years just to see him. And he's lying on a dung heap. Nobody's paying any attention to, to the poor dog anymore. And then he sees Odysseus. And he's the only one that immediately recognizes him and then just dies. Oh, that it's, is it's beautiful and sad. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. Um, so he, you know, you could see how he might find it kind of amusing to name uh, the troglodyte yeah. Argos. And yeah. Uh, yeah, and then there's this little episode of him trying to teach the troglodyte uh, speech and yeah. also just kind of wondering what the subjective experience of the troglodyte is. Right. Before uh, that, he had seen the troglodyte trying to write symbols in the dirt. And, yeah. Uh, but they... They didn't make sense. It says he was lying in the sand, clumsily drawing and rubbing out a row of symbols that resembled those letters in dream that one is just on the verge of understanding when they merge and blur. Um, so that's kind of puzzling. He's like, what is he trying? Like, surely the troglodyte who can't even speak wouldn't know how to write. But, but nonetheless, there were symbols that looked like some sort of writing. Right. It's like the city in some ways. Yeah. You know, there, um, and that is that, that dream feeling of like being just about to understand something, but you can't quite get it yeah. <laughs> yes that's this yeah, and i think this story has that feature yeah. where it just slips out of your grasp yeah um, every time you think you have it it just all of a sudden <laughs> becomes like liquid so i i like this too he says as he's reflecting on argos he says from that vivid picture i passed on to others even more extravagant i reflected that argos and i lived our lives in separate universes i reflected that our perceptions were identical but that argos combined them differently than 
I constructed from them different objects. I reflected that perhaps for him there were no objects, but rather a constant dizzying play of swift impressions. I imagined a world without memory, without time. I toyed with the possibility of a language that had no nouns, a language of impersonal verbs or indeclinable adjectives. That's a very Borges idea, all of that. All you know, of just the kind of idealism, the, the worry about subjectivism, the, the idea that the whole world can just be a stream rather than like discrete events. It's, uh, it, I know. It's, it's so cognitive science too. You know, like in perception, there is this thing called the binding problem, which is, you know, grant, you grant that all of the visual information is coming in as whatever, light bouncing. How do we construct a cohesive image of the world and not mm. like uh, just see a bunch of separate things? Like we're able to to see things as objects. We're able to see scenes as scenes. Uh, your mind is doing that somehow. Your mind is adding all that order from the chaos of your of your sensations. Mm. How do we know that the troglodyte is able to do that? You know, or like it's like what William James said about babies. They live in a blooming, buzzing confusion because they haven't. Yeah, but I, I saw it as maybe also you could view it the other way because it's a very Buddhist idea that everything is just actually a stream and that it's us that kind of break things up uh, with concepts and try to uh, take something which is this holistic ocean of consciousness and we try to divide it up into discrete parts. But that's us. That's our mind doing that. But the reality is more that it is just a stream. Right. Um, so, so I, yeah, I guess I agree. It, it is your mind imposing order on the, the stream. But what you're saying is, is that what I'm saying, what I'm calling order that your mind imposes is maybe not the accurate representation of what's, what's actually out there. And either, yeah, and either way, certainly not more accurate than somebody else who, for other contingent reasons, divides up the world differently. Differently, right? You know? And yeah. either way, his concern that Argos the troglodyte might live in a very different, different perceptual world um, yeah. is really one of the. You know, he describes it as he says, though, but a few paces from me, he seemed immensely distant. And I think that the distance between one mind and another, when you don't even know if their mind is constructing the world in the same way that yours is, is vast, right? When you, If you doubt that, you doubt so much. Yeah, and it's funny because, you know, like that's true with our dogs, right? Um, <laughs> for sure. Like we know that it's true with our dogs and it doesn't, it doesn't inspire this like, oh, I feel this vast distance from my dog emotionally. <laughs> But there's something about, A, that it's a Borges story, and it's really never about interpersonal kind of relationships, but B, the fact that it's also another human being, yeah. but one that uh, presumably has thought and, you know, intelligence, but, and, and their experience is completely different from yours, even if you're looking at the exact same thing, that's going to give you distance. Yeah, yeah. Totally. It's a, it's a, some, it's like a weird sort of alienation of the kind that Borges is like fond of being, being alone. So he, he keeps trying to teach it that its name is Argos. doesn't seem to totally get it. And uh, doesn't and even then, take an interest. Like, you know, your dog yeah. how kind of like twists its head. It wants to know. Like this, yeah, exactly. this troglodyte isn't even paying attention. Like couldn't right. be bothered. Like, it's, and it's totally not clear why the troglodyte is doing, is, is hanging right. out with this guy at all. 
Right. And that's another weird thing that possibly is addressed at the end of the story with um, a revelation. But then there's rain. Yeah. um, Which has to mean something. Big storm. And they're in the desert. So this is kind of a big deal, especially for someone who thought that they were mortal. Right. Yeah. Um, Right. and, And everybody, though, seems to be... Uh, happy and just it, it, it's kind of a primal event yeah. is, uh, it was a is really hot night and it starts raining and everybody comes out like all the troglodytes leave their little caves uh, so then there's this passage. Then this is very cool. I didn't I didn't know this when I first read this. Uh, then, with gentle wonder, as though discovering something lost and forgotten for many years, Argos stammered out these words: "Argos, Ulysses' dog." And then, without looking at me, the, this dog lying on the dung heap. Uh, and, he, and he says, we accept reality so readily, uh, perhaps because we sense that nothing is real. I asked Argos how much of the Odyssey he knew. He found using Greek difficult. I had to repeat the question. Very little, he replied, less than the meagerest rhapsode. It's been 1,100 years since I last wrote it. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's great. I, I had, had read this story before, but I completely forgotten. Um, yeah. yeah, that is uh, such a kind of a bombshell. For a, <laughs> you know, like I don't know if uh, I can't think of anything else in Borges that has something like that. Where, like, a, oh, this like weird cave dweller that's been following you, like Gollum in Lord of the Rings. <laughs> totally. <laughs> you know, like he's actually Homer. He's Homer. <laughs> yeah, it's very M. Night Shyamalan of, of Borges. <laughs> <laughs> what do you make of the fact? Should we talk about this now that it's Homer? Fuck, I don't know. I was going to ask you because I don't know anything about Homer and the significance that this that this has for Borges or for the story narrator other than it being such an important source of like, you know, the 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 epics being such a culturally important thing and Homer being so ancient. Yeah. Um and of, and it being a journey. Like this is kind yes. of a journey that he's on. Um, yeah. This is an odyssey mm-hmm. uh, for sure. Like the story itself. Um, so, I mean, I think there is a couple things that make Homer perfect for exploring immortality. Number one, you know, all these people have these kind of fuzzy identities that kind of blur in and out and nobody knows who Homer is or what he is. Is it one person? Mm. How much of it was fully set down before other people started writing? Nobody knows when he, when this happened, you know, within a few hundred years. So we don't kind of know anything about him. He's very out of focus as a, as an, as a figure, but then he produced these two works, the Iliad and the Odyssey, which are, you know, I think two of the top five works of art that have ever been created and also as just the template you know the archetype of so many different kinds of stories you know you see the the odyssey and then you look at something like inglorious bastards and they have the same ending <laughs> uh, it's like it just everything that uh that that we see now is like a faint echo of right. these Prim- two epics. primal source Exactly. So it's, you know, kind of the Jungian or the Joseph Campbell, like this set a kind of mythic um, template that we've just been doing variations on ever since. And so it it has a kind of immortality that is both extraordinary, but then also maybe it is also there's something rotten about it, too. Um, 
And I think one of the things he's exploring in this in this story is art and like the potential immortality of art. Is that a good thing or not? Mm. Um, you know, like, is it that we're now just getting copies of copies of copies, translations, like we were talking about yeah. before, like all we're getting is just the fainter, fainter and fainter kind of images of it and, and redos. And like, you know, I think a thousand and one Arabian nights he talks about, or like, uh, you know, it's, or yes. something like the Aeneid right. or something like, mm. uh, the, you know, Inferno, these are just different offshoots of the same thing. And, you know, what, like, if it just keeps going on like that, what's its real importance? I was watching a video um, with a guy who is an expert in, in Greek mythology. And he's talking about, like, how <clears throat> um, some of these Greek myths have their origins probably in even earlier African stories and how these are just right. like, they're all retold that it really is this collective memory of humanity that's passed over and been filtered through all of the cultures, but they're yep. all very much versions of things that are really, really old. And yeah, they're variations on like some sort of primordial theme, you know? Yeah, the hero's journey and all that stuff. Um, we should do Joseph Campbell at some point. And it, it didn't seem like a depressing thought. It seemed like a wonderful thought that connects, connects us to, to all of those things. But in the context of this story, what you really yeah. get is how fundamentally unimportant it is who wrote it. Right. The, the life of the individual stretched over immortal time has very little significance. Like actually, you know, Homer being an immortal makes it so that it doesn't even matter to him at that point. You know, it's like, no. Yeah. And that he, he's forgotten it, but also just did something as beautiful and perfectly structured as his two epics were. Then he does like a battle of frogs and rats. And he says, he was like the god who created first the cosmos and then chaos. Right. He lived for a century in the city of the immortals, and when it was destroyed, it was he who counseled that the other one be built. We should not be, be surprised by that. It is rumored that after singing the war of Ilion, he sang of the war between the frogs and rats. That, but that is a thing, by the way. Uh, the battle what? of frogs and mice is a thing attributed to Homer. Really? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I, I only know because I looked it up. But yeah, that yeah. that it's the opposite of a god. Usually, these these like mythical gods destroy chaos by bringing order, right? They defeat chaos and bring order. And this god first created order and then put chaos in its place. Yeah, and you know, and that's another the final thing about Homer that I was thinking of is gods are heavily featured in Homer's epics, and the gods are essentially human-like characters, except that they're immortal. Right. And so I think a lot of the interesting uh, questions yeah. that are explored in these epics is the difference between the psychology of a deathless being versus one mm -hmm. that knows that it's going to die. And, you know, people always talk about the pettiness of the Greek gods. It does seem like human beings are able to have successful relationships and 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 find a kind of deep meaning and emotional connection to the world that they can't 
Yeah. So right right after that uh, Cosmos and Chaos thing that you read, he says, there's nothing very remarkable about being immortal with the exception of mankind. All creatures are immortal for they know nothing of death. What is divine, terrible, and incomprehensible is to know oneself immortal. Um, and then he gives this really nice uh, passage about how even though there are religions that profess to believe in immortality, they don't really because their belief in immortality is really the first it says the first century counts, like the first hundred years count. And then they yeah. believe that for the rest of eternity, you're going to be punished or, or rewarded for what you did in those first hundred years. So clearly, they don't have the conception of, of an immortal life as, as he's learning. They pay so much attention to this life that they're not really, that like, they're not really thinking about it. The stakes, went, yeah. well, like all the stakes are in the first <laughs> exactly. hundred years. Right. And life. if all the stakes are in those first hundred years, then you put a lot of meaning on right. all of the fleeting things that the, the immortals here don't even right. bother with. Today's episode is brought to you by one of our favorite sponsors, GiveWell. GiveWell.org. It is that time of season. It is the giving time of season. Uh, today is Hanukkah, one of our Hanukkah nights we always um, devote to, instead of giving each other presents, making uh, each of us and our family a somewhat sizable donation. And um, yeah, I, I think GiveWell might be my donation this year. I give to GiveWell every year. Um, many of us open our hearts and make donations during the holiday season, but when you donate, one thing you want to uh, feel is confident that your donations are making a big impact. Now you could do weeks and weeks of research to find charities and figure out what they do or how effective they are and how the charity might use additional money. Or you could just visit givewell.org and there you'll find free research and recommendations about the charities that can save or improve lives the most per dollar. And GiveWell spends over 40,000 hours each year researching charitable organizations and only directs funds to a few of the highest impact evidence-backed opportunities they've found. Over 100,000 donors, including many of our listeners, we're very proud of that, have used GiveWell to donate more than $1 billion. Rigorous evidence suggests that these donations will save over 150,000 lives and improve the lives of millions more. And one of the best things about this is that using GiveWell's research is absolutely free. GiveWell actually wants as many donors as possible to make informed decisions about high-impact giving. So they publish all of their research and recommendations on their site for free, no sign-up required. Just go look, check it out. Um, this is a lot of time they've put into making this information freely available. They allocate your tax-deductible dedu donation to the charity or fund that you choose, and they don't take any cut of that uh, whatsoever. So, and none it, of the charities are like stopping AI, stopping like <laughs> none of those chat GBT from taking over the world. Or impor anything. Importantly, like, yeah, uh, <laughs> mosquito nets, malaria, anti malaria, yeah, uh, stuff that actually saves okay. lives of people who are alive. Yes. <laughs> who yes. are alive. Um, if you've never donated to GiveWell's recommended charities before, you can have your donation matched up to $100 before the end of the year or as long as matching funds last. So to claim your match, go to givewell.org and pick podcast and enter Very Bad Wizards at checkout. 
So make sure that they know that you heard about GiveWell from us. We'd really appreciate it. Um, and you can get your donation matched. Once again, that's GiveWell.org, Pick Podcast, and Very Bad Wizards at checkout. Our thanks to GiveWell for sponsoring this episode of Very Bad Wizards. One of the th- ideas that's coming across is mortality gives a kind of shape or definition to our life. It is yeah. like the thing that orders the the stream or the ocean of, uh, uh, you know, a kind of oneness of consciousness or something like that. No, like the thing, our mortality allows us to divide the world up in a way that that it can make sense to us. And without the uh, the knowledge of mortality, then all the things that we attach meaning to, it just evaporates, right? Like, yeah. and we're just going to lose our bearings. All the stuff that was once organized is now completely chaotic. And it's like, they've lost any reason to act you know yeah. like the guy in the ditch um <laughs> yeah there's a guy throw... who falls into the deepest ditch and uh and nobody bo- nobody bothers to save him and he's he's immortal but that doesn't mean he's not like really thirsty and like being beaten down by the sun but nobody really bothered to save him and he didn't even seem to care and i guess they lack so like you know you could say you just said dogs and horses and uh you know, pigs and octopuses and dolphins. Also, they don't know that they're going to die. But they don't have that same kind of total apathy. (laughs) Uh, So it's like these immortals also, they know they're not going to die, I guess is the thing. Whereas the, um, you know, the 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 other people can have fear, you know, but they just know. So so that's the key distinction between them and the animals. Yeah, right. It's the it's to know oneself immortal, um, yeah. uh, and then he he introduces this crucial point that that Borges I think often um, uh, comes back to in his discussion of infinity, where he says in in an infinite timeline, everything will happen to everybody, yeah. and like everybody if they live long enough will write the Odyssey. This is something yeah. that he's he toyed with with Pierre Menard. Um, who's trying in his short life to actually recreate the life of the Quixote, but of um, Cervantes, and but he says no. But this is the problem: you you lose individuality in a sense because you live long enough, you will become every person. All of the things that happen to you will have happened to everybody else, and vice versa. And yeah. there is this complete blurring of of who did what. And sort of like the letters were blurring together when he saw them. Um, but being, but also the art is blurring together. It's all like yeah. uh, because of this. Like he says, the rude poem of El Cid is the counterweight demanded by a single ep- epithet of the Ecologues or a maxim from Heraclitus. So even the art itself is all part of some larger mass, kind of undefinable mass of art. Just like that happens with people too. Yeah. Um, all right, the identity blurs together. The art all blurs together. And he introduces this idea of of the of balance that yeah. he says just like if you play a game of chance long enough, um, right, you'll have the same number of heads and tails. So you'll have balance. Uh, so will are the lives of men who will like do they will do everything. So they will do just as much good as they do evil, and it'll kind of just balance out. And for every shitty poem, there's a great poem, I guess. And yeah. it's a that strips and you'll do both and you'll, you'll do both, both. Right. Yeah. And that does seem to strip meaning from doing like, I like what you said. Like they, they have no more motivation to act at some point. Yeah. They will have they, done everything. Um, 
They're yeah. like like a universalized Buridan's ass. Like there's no reason <laughs> for them to do anything because they're eventually just going to do the opposite and like kind of nullify it. <laughs> right. So so what's the point? Right. He describes one of the troglodytes as like not even moving. He's just lying on his back for years and so, been like a, a bird, a, a bird <laughs> crate nests. nested on his chest. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So like, uh, I love that image of this just guy lying there for, uh, you know, months. And yeah. so birds like, Oh, this is a did that with my basketball hoop uh, outside, <laughs> just right in the back. Uh, and so like for two months I can't play basketball is, every, every it been that long since you made a basket. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he also, by the way, says of the troglodytes that all they ate was snakes, which yeah, what's yeah. To me, it just it happened to evoke the the snake eating its own tail. Like the, uh, I don't know if that was the intention, but 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 I thought of them devouring the snake as somehow representing that the infinity of the Ouroboros or however you say it. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, now I guess they just kind of go through history. It's like a Bill and Ted kind of thing, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, he he has like a brief. Like a just a very brief biography of uh, of all the things that he did, he, yeah. um, and he he uh, he fought in 1066 at the Stamford Bridge. He doesn't, but he doesn't remember which side he fought on, which I thought was kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because what does it matter? Like <laughs> yeah. if you fought on one side this time, there would be some other time. But then this idea of like there's always a counterweight to the weight is like wait if there's a river of immortality there yeah. must be one of mortality. So yeah. then they set out to find just as they set out before to find the river of immortality. Now they're setting out to uh, find the, the river of mortality. Right, and he says in a finite world where there is only like it's only a finite number of rivers, eventually they will have drank from every river. And so eventually mm -hmm. they will find the river of mortality. Yeah. yeah. So then this, and uh, this is actually before this, but yeah. it takes them a long time to find this river and they go through all of history. Um, he, he, he gets to the 1700s and that's when he's uh, got the six volumes of Pope's Iliad, um, which right. he loved. But now it's like, wait, is this Homer or is this still the soldier? Like all that is starting to get blurred. Um, he got to 1921. And he says, and there my mind uh, came to my mind other mornings long in the past when I had looked out over the Red Sea, when I was a Roman tribune and fever and magic and inactivity consumed the soldiers. And then this is right when he gets scratched on the back all of a sudden he says, I, 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 I am once more mortal. I told myself over and over again, again, I am like all other men. That night I slept until daybreak and that's the end of this part. Yeah. Yeah. So I like the, the, that uh, scratching himself and bleeding and having that realization with like ha some sort of happiness or relief. Like he slept well that night knowing that he was going to die. <laughs> yeah. Because the, that quest you know, like he had done the reverse quest before and now he's right. done the opposite quest and it is, uh, yeah, it's actually more satisfying for him. Right. And you do get the sense that he's find a, found a kind of peace yeah. <laughs> uh, from it. Right. So, yeah, so then he, then he reflects on it and he says, you know, I just reread everything that I wrote and I'm a little worried uh, because there's some <laughs> falseness in it. I'm not quite sure whether I haven't intermingled the experiences of two completely different people in this story. Right. Um, 
and because uh, I was I, I like remember where at certain point he just inexplicably he said uh, spouted out Greek and that yeah. is uh, from the catalog of ships from the Ili- uh, from the Iliad and there's a bunch of things like he calls the Nile River the Egypt River and, you know. yeah 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 it's um it's like he's going through to catch himself uh, having plagiarism like he's he 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 lists out the the things that he said that um, uh, should raise flags that that there was uh, right. some falseness in his story. It's like a self aware GPT chat, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> oh shit! Like there's obvious. I'm sorry. Here. Yeah, <laughs> I apologize. I apologize for any confusion. I apologize. I apologize. <laughs> yeah, which is 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 sort of weird. I guess this is all just to say that his existence has blurred so much with the existence of another person over time. Yeah. And and like you were saying earlier, that that just is inevitable yeah. for immortals, that their identity starts to kind of merge. And I think that is a key thing of the story is, you know, and this might be, even though I don't, I think immortality is presented with this kind of dread and weariness, kind of like heaviness, um, there is something nice about the idea that we're all just part of a bigger picture, you know, but right. there's something about the immortals that that information just drains life of meaning. But once uh, he becomes mortal again, it is something to celebrate. And then like you were saying, like it feels like it is something to celebrate yeah. that we're all making the same collage, you know, we're working on the same, yeah tapestry canvas yeah yeah and it's it's something that that i i guess you can't realize in the short lifespan of a normal human who uh, there is a passage that so i i liked so much like uh he says um talking about uh the importance of death in human life says death or reference to death makes men precious and pathetic their ghostliness is touching. Any act they perform may be their last. There's no face that is not on the verge of blurring and fading away like the faces in a dream. Everything in the world of mortals has the value of the irrecoverable and contingent. Among the immortals, on the other hand, every act, every thought is the echo of others that preceded it in the past with no visible beginning and the faithful presage of others that will repeat it in the future. Advertiginum. Um, there is nothing that is not as though lost between indefatigable mirrors. And so, oh man, it's so much here. So I think that death, maybe at least from the perspective of the immortal, makes us petty in a way because we think that everything is super important. And maybe it is. It is important because you're going to die. But from the perspective of somebody who lives who lives centuries, millennia, they realize that nothing matters in a way that we don't. But the truth is, we're all engaging in that same act of of working on the same tapestry. Um, we just don't. We just can't really. We don't have that perspective. And, and I guess the tragedy is they do have that perspective, but <laughs> unfortunately, all meaning has been stripped yeah. out of uh, any kind like their experience, and so it, they can't get any kind of pleasure from that. It's weird uh, because yeah, the immortality isn't presented as despair, like you were saying. Like it's it's apathy. The overwhelming mm. feeling is is just 
Because who gives a shit? You know, (laughs) like, you know, there are certain things that you do that are exciting. You could go bungee jumping or even just have this kind of near-death experience. And that that gives you a kind of visceral thrill and, and you feel really alive. At every level, that's taken away from you if you're immortal, you know, like... To be able to, you know, uh, make a successful career at a certain point in your life. But if you're going to live forever, you would definitely do this at some point anyway. <laughs> yeah, you will have bungee jumped. You will. Um, we didn't <laughs> and, even and say... And bungee th- jumping is a mean... Like, yeah. why... Like, like why would you? who cares? Yeah. You know, you're... Uh, there's, there's no actual risk or threat. There's nothing... Like, you can't even conceive of the idea that this would be dangerous. Um, yeah, the thrill is gone. <laughs> yes, the thrill <laughs> is gone. Um, yeah. We didn't even we didn't even mention um, that the beginning quote that that opens the story, which is from Francis yeah. Bacon, that says, uh, "Solomon saith, there is no new thing upon the earth." So that as Plato had an imagination that all knowledge was but remembrance, so Solomon giveth his sentence that all novelty is but oblivion. Yeah, that is. I mean, clearly, like that is at like a core message of the story both that there's no new thing on earth that all this stuff is just cycling through and we're doing different variations we talked about this earlier of these same kind of mythic archetypes and we're just remembering that um in each new stage of history Um, and then the idea that novelty is but oblivion i think that's if, if 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 you do something genuinely new it's and and not within this i don't know archetypal structure then it's just immediately going to be forgotten i don't know is that how you interpret that part Uh, interesting i know i hadn't but i don't think i had a firm interpretation of the novelty as oblivion i like i i was reading it more like it's illusory like there's no there's not actually novelty like there's no there there's no yeah. Once you've done everything, there is no novelty. But but I don't know that that's the right interpretation. Maybe because it at least the way the sentence is structured, it's like uh, the the knowledge is remembering stuff that's already been done. Yeah. And anything that's not already be it, uh, been done is immediately going to evaporate or disappear. Or it will be swallowed in the machinations yeah. of history. It will just become incorporated and right. be repeated. <laughs> Um, right. And it won't ever. And it'll all be Marvel movies. <laughs> it'll all be Marvel movies that are based based on. Uh, on uh, <laughs> uh, oh, Chloe Zhao, the the writer, like really interesting, <laughs> just kind of new genre of film. Oh, and now you're just doing actually the Eternals. I mean, right? <laughs> as the end approaches, there are no longer any images from memory. There are only words. Um, he's lived so long that that. It's not even. It's like propositional knowledge at this point. It's not. It's not actually recall. Um, yeah. It is not strange that time may have confused those that once portrayed me with those that were symbols of the fate of the person that accompanied me for so many centuries. I have been Homer. Soon, like Ulysses, I shall be nobody. Soon, yeah. I shall be all men. I shall be dead. Yeah. Uh, when the I shall be nobody. Yeah. Like, Capital I and N. Yeah. Uh, that is a reference to Odysseus in the Odyssey on the Cyclops Island and the way he tricked the Cyclops to um, not get help from the other Cyclops as they were attacking him is to say that his name was nobody. 
And then there's this postscript that is more fascinating the more I think about it. The postscript said to have been written in 1950. Now, note that like this was originally published in 1947. So he's like future traveling. And so he says, uh, postscript from 1950. Among the commentaries inspired by the foregoing publication, the most curious, if not most urbane, is biblically titled The Code of Many Colors. He makes up a fake fake book that was published in 1948 and interesting title too in, yeah uh, like for in the context of this kind of chaotic story oh yeah, yeah. I didn't even thought about it. um that basically said speaks of this tale attributed to the rare book dealer joseph cartophilus which is the name of the the immortal the the protagonist of the story um where he says basically that this was it can't be authentic because it was pretty much ripped off from uh Pliny, Descartes, and Thomas de Quincey, and from Bernard Shaw. And he infers that the entire document is apocryphal. And it's, whoever's writing this, Borges, to my way of thinking, that conclusion is unacceptable. At the end, as the end approaches, wrote Cartophilus, there are no longer any images from memory. There are only words, 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 words taken out of place and mutilated, words from other men. Those were the alms left, by, left him by the hours and the centuries. It's it's meta in the way that I love Borges always is he knows that nothing that he writes can be original. And so he's offering a critique of his own story and then a defense saying like, yeah, like I've just, I've just told you that this story cannot help but be composed from the mishmash of all history that is, that is renders any, any notion of original or creative as, as meaningless. So, uh, to, to the claim that this is apocryphal or didn't really happen. He just says, no, that's just how things go. Like it is a blend of everything that's ever happened. And it is also my, my novel story. Yeah. Uh, You know, there's one part of it. It's like, we're all just moving pieces around a board and just like, we, we all have the same pieces and we're just moving them around in different ways. And we call that our original work because we're all just doing the same thing from the same sources. And that's actually, like you said, it's both a criticism and a defense. It's like, you know, certainly the way Borges is doing it is better than uh, (laughs) the way I could do it. But then there's also this kind of negative aspect of it where he says that the words are taken out of place and mutilated. And so you get the sense that it's also kind of degrading that you have this original shining source of artistic goodness and that we just keep kind of making it worse, um, feeding it through the same system. And the, the copy, you know, the, the, the brightness of it is just fading it, uh, the, the longer it goes. So I, you know, that's, it's kind of interesting that at the, on the one hand, you can think of this as, well, that's just what creativity and art is. You're not coming out of the swamps of nothingness. You yeah. are doing it within a tradition and a culture and a whole, and a, and a whole history, a whole, all of human history. You're working within that context, but then you also get this sense that it's just getting worse and worse and more deformed the more we're doing it. This is what I, I kind of love about this, the, that, that dual understanding that it's both valuable and nothing. Cause when he says that these are just words from other men taken out of place and mutilated, and then he describes it, the last sentence of uh, the last clause, those were the alms left him by the hours and the centuries. 
where the it's degraded, as you say, the alms, like you're a beggar, you're getting scraps from somebody who's given them to you. But to you, the beggar, yeah. those alms are your life. It's meaningful. And so yeah. he's saying like, he has the insight to know that his story has borrowed so heavily from other stories so as to him for him to not even know whether things originated from him or not. These are the alms given to him by the centuries. Um, Borges, to Borges, these are the alms given to us, that that great tradition of ideas. Um, yeah. And, and we're so, just a degraded version. We're a degraded version, but that's all we have. You know, yep. we're the we're the starving beggar who's been given the snake to eat. Like uh It's it's so funny because you can look at it in the, both this positive and negative yeah. way. Like I love genre movies and genre art in general, where you take kind of established tropes, but you uh, put your own spin on it, you know? And like Borges is obviously, like you said, doing this here. You have this uh, archetypical kind of story, a quest for immortality. Yeah. Um, and then it kind of spins off in all these Borges ways with all these Borges themes and ideas and, you know, philosophical questions. Like, that's a good thing, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to feel why, you know he has this negative spin on it, you know? In what way is the, is it just like a kind of uh, Camus idea of absurdity? We want it to be something wholly original and it can't be, is that? But that wouldn't even account for the degrading of it, you know? It seems like the, the thing itself, the ideas, the philosophy, the art, the idea, that is getting worse as history progresses, as it gets fed through this system. Yeah, but I'm not convinced that Borges is convinced that it's degradation. I think he's presenting both both, both sides side. here. And I think what he's saying maybe is that from the lens of eternity, yeah, this is all like some Savannah African who saw a Marvel movie would be like, you know, you're just telling the same story we told um, and maybe shittier. But quippier. <laughs> <laughs> but with more CG. Um, and Borges is saying from the perspective of the mortal, like when that guy got pricked by the thorn and realized he was mortal again, things meant enough for him to write the story for the yeah. first time in all the centuries, all of a sudden he right. had reason and motivation to write down that original story or original in a way that he knows is not really original, but nonetheless, the energy for to, to create. And yeah. so I think Borges is not so down on it. What he's doing is he's like looking into the face of that and saying, and yet I still wrote this. And it's a separate issue about just actually being immortal and how that strips the meaning of everything and makes everything dreary whether yeah. or not it was original or right. you know part of the same uh, variations on the same uh, themes it seems like when you're immortal it doesn't not nothing like that could possibly matter and you know you're going to hear the stories the, you're going to hear it again and you're going to you know you heard it once you're going to hear it again like why like what is it probably tell the stories <laughs> yeah. at some point but Unlike the troglodytes who literally would just have like rats eat at them or birds nest on them, he did have enough of a kind of motivation to go through, you know, 2,000 years of history. Yeah. But the only reason he had that is because he was trying to 
find the river right. of mortality. So you, it, like the you only need thing at least that's the right. prospect of death to get yourself to like get right. off the ground. It right. seems like. Yeah. That's the only thing that got the troglodytes to leave their city is that somebody came around and told them, Hey, you realize that there's probably this Im- right. de- mortality right. river. Yeah. Some a-, a priori argument that convinced them that <laughs> right. if there was an Im- immortality river, there must be a mortality river. <laughs> right. Yeah. But yeah, I think he's he's being uh, an optimist, but he's but he's his really? eyes are open to what's yeah. going on. I, I wouldn't call this an optimistic story. No, no. I'm just saying that he's ending with not like a condemnation of ever doing uh yeah. ever writing. Cuz it's not yeah. I don't know. I find some solace in the thought that it's all, that this has been the common experience of all humanity, that we might tell the same stories. I think it's fucking amazing that, uh, you know, we're reading the Iliad and the Odyssey. Like I do this every year and people today can connect with those stories. uh, Incredible. uh, Even though they're, you know, it was written like 3000 years ago. It's, that's amazing. Like it's inspiring, but maybe the only reason we can appreciate that is because we're going to die. We understand that time has some kind of significance, you know? So there's this other thing that I just thought of, which is that when we read those things, like as you were describing the, it's amazing that we're reading the Iliad, it's amazing that yeah. we're reading Borges, to be honest, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. that this is a kind of immortality for us. It, like the true immortals, they they have become Homer. They have become Odysseus. They've lived uh, long enough that everything happens to them that would happen to anybody else. We can connect in a find some form of like, you know, quote unquote immortality by we can become Homer and Odysseus and Borges through the act of like engaging with what they've written. Um, yeah, and yeah, that's that's the kind of of immortality that that brings some you know it's not true immortality yeah. it just brings some meaning to me to connect like that. And really, from now on, everything is just going to be fainter and fainter echoes of very bad wizards episodes. <laughs> you know, like we have set the it's, new template of what like all culture. Well, it's amazing, Tamler, that despite being somewhat convinced by Borges, that we have actually created such original thoughts and. Content. No, I mean, no, it just so happens that, you know, we're we finally brought something. Kind of... We finally brought something new under the sun. <laughs> yeah. And now it just all goes. This is, it's like AD, BC kind of, you know. <laughs> there's, there's life. AVBW is like what, what, what it's going to be from now on. <laughs> all right. It's a good place right. to end. It's a it's a great story. It's, great it's story. so good. It's so fertile. Like I feel like we could have another like hour and a half conversation about other aspects of it that we haven't touched on. I know. He he's a fucking he's just uh, this gift that keeps on giving. It's amazing. And if you have if you've listened to these episodes on Borges and have not read it, pick up the collected fictions translated by Andrew Hurley. Um yeah. it's it's worth it. These stories are short. This is why I love them so much. They're short. Uh, but chock full, just dense, full of ideas. Um, oh, I think this is his longest story, and it's like ten pages yeah. or something like God. that, eleven pages. I love that uh, efficiency. Like, yeah, uh, for him, this is like an infinite length story. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Borges. Um, yes. it, it really is like the golden goose. Like, I feel like we could do episodes f- until we die on Borges stories. That's right. Without repeating. Or don't die. <laughs> <laughs>
Join us next time. I'm very bad with it. Just a very bad wizard.